Awesome. Thanks, Clark, and good morning, everybody. Welcome to Grace this morning as we continue in the series, like Clark mentioned, that we're calling Far From Normal. As you can probably tell from the, uh, the tagline of the series, what we are doing is we're studying through the book of Acts together. And so part of that reading challenge is actually just birthed out of that. We're encouraging everyone who's going through this series together uh, to maybe go through the book of Acts yourself, read through that day-by-day uh, day, uh, reading plan that we have, and hopefully, if you can, even kind of jump in on the memory thing as well. Seth and I are willing to put our hair on the line for that, uh, which is good. It's actually not a big deal. It's more for my wife because she has to live with me, so pray for her. I'm already ugly as it is. It doesn't help if I shave my head. So anyway, that's happening. Hope you guys can jump in on that. But, uh, but let me just say that if you are a first-time guest with us this morning, or if maybe you've missed the past couple of weeks, thanks so much for being here. And uh, if you're a guest, we really hope that you get a chance to get that gift that we have for you for, for if you're just visiting with us. We hope you can grab that. Just our way of saying thanks for being here. But this is the second week that we, we've been in this series. Last week was the first week where we kind of introduced this idea of this, this series, Far From Normal. And, uh, and I just encourage you that if you did miss, miss last week, we, we kind of set up a lot of thoughts there. And I'd encourage you to grab that if you want to. You can watch that sermon or you can listen to it for free. Go to our website, graceohio.org, and you can watch that sermon. Or you can uh, go to iTunes and uh, go to Grace Church Medina East Campus and get the podcast and listen to that uh, when you're jogging or on your way to work or whatever it is. And uh, that'd be a good way to, to kind of catch up. But uh, as we said, this is a study we've been going, we're going to be going through together over the course of this eight-week series, the book of Acts. And if you're not a Bible person, if, if you're not entirely sure what the book of Acts is, um, the book of Acts is one of several books that's contained in the Bible. It is the fifth book of the New Testament. And so you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are considered the Gospels or kind of the stories of Jesus. And then uh, you get to the book of Acts. That's the book that we're concerning ourselves with kind of through the course of this, uh, this series together. It's an amazing book. And so last week we started off looking at Acts chapter 1. This week, I don't want to waste any time. I just want you to grab your Bibles with me. We're going to go to Acts chapter 2 as we kind of continue in this together. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go to Acts 2, Acts chapter 2. And uh, if you did not bring a Bible with you this morning or you don't own a Bible, there's no problem at all. We actually have several that are out there, hardback copies. You can grab one of those. And uh, in those black Bibles that we've provided, page 759, is where you're going to find Acts chapter 2. So I encourage you to flip there. And uh, let me just say that if you are a guest with us this morning, if you don't own a Bible, like if you just flat out don't own a copy of the Bible, would you just do us a favor and just take one of ours? Make it a gift from us to you. Write your name in it. You can have it. And, uh, and there you go. So Acts 2 is where we're going to go. And as you guys are flipping to Acts 2, before we jump in, it'd be good to give you some background. And so I want to give you some background by giving you some facts about Acts. I want to give you some more Acts facts. If you guys were here last week, you might remember we did a little segment we called Acts Facts. It's really fun to say, Acts Facts. And so I'm going to keep saying it, and I want you to say it too. So we're going to look at a couple Acts Facts, and I want you guys to say it. It's on the count of three. You guys ready? We're going to do Acts Facts again. Ready? One, two, three. Acts Facts. It's really fun to say. So here's some Acts Facts for you just to kind of help us whet our appetites for this morning. Uh, last week, you might remember, we said that the, the book of Acts is really centered on um, the Holy Spirit. If we can summarize in a nutshell, what is the book of Acts about? That is what it's about. It's about what does a group of people, what does a person look like who is empowered by the Holy Spirit? That's the primary concern of the book of Acts. In fact, uh, over 57 explicit references are mentioned in the book of Acts to the Holy Spirit, referring to the Holy Spirit. Um, some of you might know this, that the book of Acts, the reason it's called Acts, is because historically this book was called the Acts of the Apostles. That was sort of the full title it was given throughout history. However, most commentators would agree, and I think with good reason, that probably the better title would be the Acts of the Holy Spirit. 
Because that, that's what this book is about. It's about how God uses ordinary people and powers them with the Holy Spirit to do extraordinary things, right? So that's sort of what the primary concern of the book of Acts is all about. Now, I know that when I talk about the Holy Spirit, for some of us, that's a very, very vague and strange thing, especially if you're a person who's investigating Jesus. I know not everyone in here is a Christ follower. And my guess is if you're a person that's investigating Jesus, and even if you, even if you know Jesus, sometimes the Holy Spirit can seem really weird. You're like, what exactly is that? What is the Holy Spirit? And, um, you know, there's a ghost now, a holy ghost, maybe you've heard it called. So this is really weird, right? And what is that? And so let me just real quick, as part of our Acts Facts, let me just give you a quick snapshot of, about the Holy Spirit. Now, I will say that throughout the entire Bible, we could, we could do an entire series simply on the Holy Spirit. But for our sake, I just want to give you a snapshot. Um, what, is, what are we talking about? We're talking about the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit? Well, first and foremost, we talk about the Holy Spirit. One of the things that you'll notice in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. So the question really isn't what is the Holy Spirit. The question really should be who is the Holy Spirit. And uh, in the Bible, we see that there is a personhood to the Spirit. So for example, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit has a mind, that the Holy Spirit has a will. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says the Holy Spirit has feelings, that you can grieve the Holy Spirit. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Holy Spirit can be resisted, that you can lie to the Holy Spirit. And of course, the pronoun that's used for the Holy Spirit all throughout the Bible is he. So, so the Bible calls the Holy Spirit not an it, uh, it is a he, right? He, he is the Holy Spirit. And so I just want you to understand, when we're talking about the Holy Spirit, we're not just talking about some vague, ambiguous force. Right? This isn't like Star Wars, right? the force is with you mightily or something like that. This is like a, a person, the Holy Spirit, um, that is with you. So the Bible tells us that. Another, another thing about the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us that the Bible in, indicates to us the Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit is God. And we see this in a couple different places. Uh, in one way, we see that the Holy Spirit is given the names of God, the names of deity. And so in the passages I mentioned to you here, um, the Holy Spirit is, uh, is interchangeably used with the term God and Lord. And, and so he's given the, the titles or the names of God in the same way. We also see that he possesses the attributes of God. And so the, uh, the eternal nature, um, omnipresence, omniscience, uh, all-knowing, uh, all, everywhere at once, that, that whole idea, the, those attributes that are kind of reserved for God, we are told that those are true of the Holy Spirit too. So it's not like there's God and then there's like the Holy Spirit. It's like, no, no, no. The Holy Spirit is God. And of course, all that kind of comes up in this, in this really, really interesting, uh, sort of difficult to explain dynamic that the Bible calls the Trinity. So the Holy Spirit is a member of the Trinity. Now my guess is if you've, even if you're not a church person, you're probably at least familiar with the teaching of the Trinity. That God is one God that exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's those three dimensions to God. And there's a few different passages where we see all three aspects at play at one time. I've mentioned to, to you up there a few of those, but that's sort of the idea of the Trinity. Now, that's just a quick snapshot, just a very, very quick snapshot. And my guess is, for some of you, as I explain that, you're like, well, now I have more questions than I do answers, so thanks for that. And if that's the case, let me just say that if you have more questions about the Holy Spirit, we would love to help you process through that. And so just let us know in your connection card. Maybe we can get a cup of coffee and chat about it. If you have questions, we can chat in the cafe afterwards. I would be really glad to just give you Seth's personal cell phone number, and you can call Seth any time of the night, specifically <laughs> at night, and ask him about the Trinity, all right? Because that's an easy thing to explain. And so, uh, and so he can do that for you. But anyway, Anyway, I just wanted to give you a snapshot. What are we talking about? We're talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, last week, you might remember, we basically said the whole book of Acts is about the Holy Spirit. And really, kind of the major thought that we're trying to convey during this whole series is this. 
is that with the Holy Spirit, right, the extraordinary is ordinary. The Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. That's what we're, we're kind of saying. That really, what the book of Acts is about is that there is a new normal now with the Holy Spirit, that, that, that he changes things in such a way um, that he redefines what is normal. And so what we're doing through this series then, as we're going through the book of Acts, is each week we're looking at a different passage in the book of Acts, and we're simply asking three questions. That's all we're doing. And so that's what we're going to do today too. We're going to look at a passage of scripture. We're going to ask three questions. And here's the three questions we're going to ask. Number one, with the Holy Spirit, what should be normal? If the Holy Spirit redefines normal and he makes the extraordinary ordinary, then with the Holy Spirit, what should be normal? Here's the second question we're going to ask. What tends to be normal? In our culture, at our church, what tends to be normal? And then the third question is this, is why? So real simple, right? Pretty easy to track, right? So uh, what should be normal? What tends to be normal? And why? So that's what we're going to do. And the passage we're going to look at today is the, the, the end of Acts chapter 2. That's the passage we're going to look at. And, and let me just tell you that if you missed last week, I'll just kind of give you, an, a, once again, a quick um, synopsis. Basically what happened last week, I looked at Acts chapter 1, and the Bible said that Jesus died. He rose from the dead, and then he came to his disciples, and he looked at them, and he said, you guys, I'm, I've risen from the dead. And, and he's like, I'm about to ascend and go to the Father, and the Holy Spirit's going to come to you in a few days, is what he said. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, and he says, and you're going to receive power. So with Jesus, we looked at that last week. And so Jesus looks at his disciples. He says, I don't want you to go anywhere. I don't want you to do anything. Don't touch anything. Stay put. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he's going to give you the power to live in an extraordinary life. God, God is going to use you ordinary men to do extraordinary things. And so in Acts chapter 2, just like Jesus promised, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit comes upon the believers. And we're told that happens during a celebration that's called Pentecost. There's one day called Pentecost, and all of these people were together celebrating. And the Bible tells us that in the midst of that celebration, the Holy Spirit of God descended on the people. And I'm just telling you, if you've never read Acts 2, you need to read Acts 2 this week. It's incredible what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon these people. The Bible tells us that there's a diversity of people that are from different countries. They speak different languages. And as a result of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, people are able to speak in such a way that they understand each other, even though they speak different languages. And the Bible says that in the midst of this circumstance, the apostle Peter stands up. And you guys remember Peter? Peter was like this impulsive, kind of crazy guy in the Old Testament, you know, I mean, in the, in, the, in the Old Testament, in the Gospels. And now he stands up and he's empowered with the Holy Spirit and he gives this sermon, and I mean, it's an awesome sermon. In fact, we're going to look a little bit at it next week. He gives this incredible sermon, and the Bible tells us that as a result of his sermon, 3,000 people come to know Jesus for the first time. And so they accept Jesus, and the Bible says that as a result of them coming to know Jesus and becoming Christians, they too are empowered by the Holy Spirit. Okay? So, so you're tracking with that? 3,000 people. This is day one of the church. This is the first time church has ever happened. Peter gets up and gives the first sermon, and 3,000 people become Christians. And they all get empowered with the Holy Spirit. And then the Bible says something peculiar happens. And I want you to take a look at this with me in verse 42. So we're going to look at verse 42 to 47. It says this. It says that they, who's they? That would be the 3,000 people that just came to know Jesus who are now empowered by the Holy Spirit. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together, and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. 
Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Man, what a cool passage of scripture. Here we have, I just want you to see this, a snapshot of what a Holy Spirit-empowered community looks like. Remember, remember we're, at, we're saying that the Holy Spirit makes the extraordinary ordinary. Well, here we see what the Holy Spirit does as it relates to community. And so I want to talk about community today, and I want to talk about those three questions. So the, remember the three questions? With the Holy Spirit, what should be normal as it relates to community? What tends to be normal as it relates to community? And why? So let's talk about that first thing. With the Holy Spirit, what should be normal? Well, once again, here we have a picture of that, right? If I was to ask you, what does your ideal church look like? You might be able to write me a list of things that you think your ideal church should look like. It probably would include me because I'm attractive and a few other things. Uh, but we, ha- we actually have here a picture of what God says, this is my ideal for what I think a church should look like, right? And what does that include? Well, let's take a look at it. Let's just kind of dissect it verse by verse. First off, you'll notice that this group of people, what was normal for them was they had a new devotion, They had a new devotion. I want you to notice the word that's used there in verse 42. It says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayer, and everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. That word devoted there is actually a really powerful word, very, very powerful word. And uh, in the original Greek, the idea of that word devoted, what it means, sort of the sense that comes with it, is this idea. It means to persist obstinately in something. That's what it means to be devoted. So, so you get the idea, right? This is the idea of we are all in on this thing, man. We are, we are, um, we are persistently obstinate. We are not giving up on this thing. So this is, I want you to understand, for these new Christians, this was not a nominal, like, I'm kind of a Christian. I sort of attend every once in a while type of thing. This was like a I am all in type of devotion, a persistent obstinance to these things. And what was it they were devoted to? Well, notice there's a couple things that are mentioned here. First off, the Bible says they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. So what was the apostles' teaching? Well, we actually know what the apostles taught because the Bible records it for us. And some of you might know that um, the, the 12 apostles or the disciples, these would have been guys that Jesus would have invested in personally. And the Bible tells us that when he commissioned them out to make disciples, he said, I want you to teach them everything I've taught you. And so what do the apostles teach? Well, the, the, the apostles taught the same thing Jesus taught. We, we actually have pictures of what the apostles taught in the Bible. They taught the Old Testament. They taught about the things in the Old Testament. They taught about Jesus. And then we also have a lot of their teaching recorded because the apostles wrote books. So like Peter, the apostle Peter, he wrote a couple books. You know what they're called? Peter, right? Pretty convenient. First Peter and second Peter, great. John, the apostle John, he wrote some books. You know what they're called? John. And then there's first John, second John, Third John, and then Revelation. That's kind of just thrown in there. And, uh, and then you have uh, other apostles. Matthew wrote the book of Matthew. The apostle Paul wrote most of the New Testament. And so listen, all I'm saying is this, okay, is that when it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, what that means for you and I is that we are devoted to the Bible, right? Because the teaching that these folks had is the same teaching that we had, namely the, the apostles' teaching, the teaching about Jesus, the Gospels, and the Old Testament. So we have the same teaching. And the Bible says that they were devoted to this, meaning they were persistently obstinate in it. They were like, we need to understand what this book means, and, and we're not giving up until we understand it. 
and how it applies to our lives. We are so dedicated to learning what the Bible teaches. That's one of the things that we see about this community. Another thing we see that this community was dedicated to, notice it uses this great word. It says they were dedicated to the apostles' teaching. And then the second thing it says, and to fellowship. To fellowship. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Fellowship. That's a word if you grew up in the church. Man, that's a churchy word. Maybe if you guys grew up in the church, you guys have a fellowship hall. You remember that? The fellowship hall. It was the hall that you did fellowship in. I don't even know what, you, what that means exactly. What is fellowship? Is it like a bunch of fellas shipping? I have no idea. <laughs> Well, fellowship, it's a weird word. What does that mean? Well, let me just help you out on this one, right? Maybe you can, maybe you can help me out. Let's just do a thumbs up, thumbs down thing. Tell me if what I'm saying is, is fellowship in your opinion. Okay, let's say a couple Christians get together and watch the Browns game. Fellowship? Yes or no? Let's see. Uh, I see a lot of you have your thumbs up, right? That's probably because the Browns are holy. But, <laughs> but it's actually probably more like this, right? Because, because uh, Simply Christians getting together to do activities doesn't necessarily mean it's fellow. Like if you're a couple Christians getting together to knit, it doesn't mean that you're fellowshipping. It means you're knitting. You're Christians that are knitting. That's all it means, right? What about, what about two Christian Steeler fans getting together to root for the Steelers? Fellowship? No, I mean, that's a trick question because that's an oxymoron. That's like saying, are there Christian Satanists? It's impossible. And so it's impossible for that to happen, right? But, uh, but anyway, here, here's my point. Fellowship, the idea of fellowship includes way more than just hanging out with Christians together. It, it, the, the idea, the word that's used here, a great little word, is the word koinonia. Koinonia, Greek word. Here's what it means. It means communion, participation. Here's the real essence. It means sharing. In the deepest sense, it means sharing life with each other. In the deepest recesses, and, and it's all surrounding, um, in particular, a commitment to the person of Jesus Christ. That's what koinonia is. It is this deep sharing of fellowship, the sharing of life, the sharing of your hearts, the sharing of your faith, the sharing of com communion that is centered around the person of Jesus Christ, centered around the gospel. That's what the, and the Bible, look, the Bible says that these folks, they were devoted to that. They were persistently obstinate about being in each other's lives. They shared aggressively, is what the Bible shows us. In fact, if you look at the next segment of verses here, from verse 45 down to verse 47, what do you see? You see them sharing a lot of things. Look at it. It says, they sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. And the Lord added to their number every day those who were being saved. What's that all about? Sharing, 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 sharing. These people shared. Let me just show you five ways that these people shared. First off, you'll notice they shared their possessions with each other. Look what it says in verse 45. They sold property and possessions and they gave to anyone who had need. Man, this was a radically reprioritized community. People, people were so devoted to each other. They were so committed to each other that if there was a need among them, they'd be like, you know what? I'll just sell some of my stuff. I'll take the money from my extra house or from my extra car or whatever, and we'll just take that money and we'll give it to the apostles and they'll distribute it to anyone who's in need. And the Bible says that there was such a radical reprioritization on these people's parts that they were so empowered by the Holy Spirit that they were compelled to share. And one of the things they shared was their stuff, was their possessions with you. They just shared. When someone has, you know, I'll just, the Bible tells us in one particular instance, Barnabas, this guy, he sold a field. It's like, I have a field. I'm not using it. I'll sell it. And I'll give the money to help the needs of the community. It was this incredible reprioritization. They shared their possessions. Another thing they shared, the Bible tells us, is they shared their time. Notice what it says here. Every day, 
<laughs> they continue to meet together every day. This is, not, this is not a Christianity that's confined to one hour a week, one day a week. That this was pervasive. This, this included their whole calendar. They were constantly getting together. They were devoted to the Bibles. They were getting together to have Bible studies. They were probably having a life group. They were doing all kinds of stuff outside of just one particular time. They shared time. Not only did they share time, they also shared space. Look what it says here. It says that they met in the temple courts, which would have been like the public setting. That would have been sort of like this, right? It's a public setting that we get together, a large group. But also, they, they broke bread in their homes. They shared their homes with each other. And so, and so in the same way that their faith was not simply limited to one day a week, their faith was not limited to, to one building, right? It wasn't like that's the church building. The church is everywhere, right? And they're meeting here, and now they're in homes, and now they're having life groups over here, and all this is happening, and they're sharing all of these things. They're sharing their possessions. They're sharing their homes. They're sharing their space with each other. They're together all the time. I mean, this picture is incredible. They share that. Here's my, here's my favorite one. Here's the fourth one. Ready? They shared their food. Right? Amen to that. Yeah, I love this church. They shared their food with each other, and they got together, and they ate often. And I, I really love this next part. Notice that Luke, the author of the book of Acts, adds for us, they ate together, and I like this, with glad and sincere hearts. I'm so glad he added that because, I don't know about you, have you ever shared your food or other things with people with, with a, a non-sincere heart? Am I the only one who's done that? Someone, I'll be eating something that's really good, you know, some kind of meal, and someone's like, oh, that looks really good. Can I have a bite? And I'm like, yeah, sure. I'd love for you to have it. And I'll give them a bite of my food. But look, the Bible says that that's not the way that these people shared. It wasn't with reluctancy. It wasn't, out of, it wasn't mandatory, right? It was out of a compulsion. They, they wanted to do this. It was with sincere and with glad hearts. And I'm really glad the Bible includes that because this helps us understand that this is not communism. I know for some of us when we read this, the first thought we have is that sounds like communism. In fact, there's been many communist movements that have used this passage as support uh, for their view. But the reason this isn't communism is because communism is mandated. It's enforced. The Bible tells us this was not mandatory. This was not enforced. This just happened. This was the result of the work of the Holy Spirit in a group of people. They were compelled to do it because they were so moved by the grace of God that they simply wanted to share. So they shared a lot of things. They shared property, time, space, food. Here's the last thing I'll mention to you. They shared their faith. These guys shared their faith. In fact, look what it says in verse 47. It says, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so this, again, this is so important because I think if we just had verse 42 to verse 46, we would get the idea that this group was like a cult, right? They, they were so internally focused. They cared so much about each other that, uh, that they had no concern for the outside world. But the Bible tells us that was not the case at all. This group of people were living their faith out in public. And as a result of that, the Bible says that many people turned to Christ and every day people were being added to the number. And so what should community look like that's empowered by the Holy Spirit? Well, the Bible gives us this really awesome snapshot of what it looks like when the first people who are empowered by the Holy Spirit got together, what that community actually looks like. So, so that's what it should look like, right, with the Holy Spirit. That's what normal should be because the Holy Spirit makes, ordinary or, uh, makes the extraordinary ordinary. And here's the second question. What tends to be normal? What tends to be normal? And I, I will just say this real quick before we jump into this, that um, when I look at Acts chapter 2, for the most part, and I consider our church, for the most part, I am mostly encouraged. 
There's a lot of things that we read about in Acts chapter 2 that I would say are happening at Grace Church at all of our campuses, and it makes me really excited. But I would say that what tends to be normal to some degree or another is a bit different than what the Bible paints as the picture of normal. So let me just give you a few things of what tends to be normal in our culture. Uh, I would say the first thing is this. The first thing that tends to be normal in our culture as it relates to the church is that the prevailing attitude of most people in our culture regarding the church in 21st century America is cynicism. I mean, agree or disagree. In our culture, for the most part, generally speaking, the attitude that most people have in our culture about organized religion tends to be one of cynicism. And, and I just say, if you're, if you're a person right now who's investigating Jesus, my guess is that this is probably, maybe for you, true, that you would, that you would say that your attitude towards the church tends to be a little bit more cynical. And, um, and I would honestly say, understandably so. Understandably so. Because when you look at the past several decades, in fact, when you look at the history of the church, there have been so many hurtful, harmful things that have been done in the name of religion, that have been done in the name of Jesus, and as a result of that, I think it's led to a, uh, a very understandable cynicism. In fact, forget history, even the experiences in this room. My guess is that the, the, the bad church experience you had, um, the youth pastor that you had that fell into immorality, or um, the, the scam or the scandal that happened at your church, or the, or the church split that took place because of the color of the carpet or something that's so insignificant, and, and, and listen, a lot of that, what it develops in our heart is it develops a, a sense of cynicism, right? And so we come to the church, and the Bible says in the book of Acts that the sense that these people had was a sense of awe. They, they were like, this is awesome. Like, literally, this is awe-inspiring what God is doing. But I would say in our culture, what tends to be true is that we don't have a sense of awe. We have a sense of cynicism. I'll just tell you, in my own experience growing up in church, the only sense of awe I ever had growing up was when my parents told me I had to go to church. And I was like, oh, I don't want to go to church. And then my parents would actually coerce me to go to church by offering me Krispy Kreme donuts if I was good. I'll just tell you, it was worth the trade. And, uh, and, but, but I think a lot of us, we, we kind of come to church with a cynical kind of, unfortunately, I think that some of that's pretty valid pretty valid. Here's another thing I think that we see in our culture. Another thing that tends to be normal is that there is a consumer mentality that is definitely pervasive in, um, in the, in the, at least in the Western church, in our culture today. When you guys think about it, I don't have any st statistical proof on this, but I'm just kind of going on a hunch here. This has to be, it has to be the most consumerist generation that the world has ever seen. It, it just, we have to be. And when you, when you look at Man, just the fact that you and I, in our culture, we are conditioned this way, aren't we? We are trained to be consumers. When you look at the competitive marketplace and you look at how every company is eager for your attention, fighting for your attention, what that means for us is it means that we have access to anything that we want and any preference that we want made our way. It is, it is a, a culture that is geared towards anything that you desire. The customer is always right. And we are conditioned, we are trained this way. And I'll just tell you that as it relates to um, economy, that can be a very helpful thing. But when we take that same mentality into the church, it can actually be very destructive. And so, and so a lot of times what we see in church is this consumer, consumer mentality comes in. And so it looks like this, right? It looks like if, if I don't get the preferences that I desire, if I don't get the things that I need from my church, then I'm going to go somewhere else, or I'm going to find another church, or I'm going to get involved somewhere else and connect somewhere else. If you hear the way we talk about church, a lot of times we use consumer, consumer language, don't we? 
So we'll say things like, well, I just want to get fed. I need to get fed. We'll say those, it's a very consumer word. We'll say things like, I've to, I'm just church shopping. These are consumer terms that we oftentimes use and they kind of creep into um, the way that we, we tend to view community today. I think um, there's a guy named Dr. Derek Hanby and he put it this way. I thought this was really brilliant. This is what he said. It's a little satirical. He's being kind of uh, sarcastic when he says this, but I just want you to, to look what he says. He says, if the church doesn't meet my needs, and I remember he's being sarcastic here. He says, if the church doesn't meet my needs, then I'm going elsewhere. If you don't do it for me, then I'm gone. He says, consider the worship wars, which is the battle in many churches about what type of music should be played. Consider the worship wars. If I don't like the style of music, then I'm gone. Is it about reaching people and helping them connect to God, or is it because I'm used to changing the channel when I don't like the song? I have an iPod that I can set up my own playlist, but when, it, when I come to church, I have to take what's given. I can vote folks off of American Idol, so why can't I vote the pastor off stage for getting stale lately? To which some of you guys are like, amen. And I'm like, shut up, right? And, but what's he, what's he hitting on here? He's, he's hitting on the reality that many of us face that will take this consumerist mentality. If you notice in the book of Acts, the Bible tells us that this group of people was characterized not by, what they, not, by, not by their taking, but by their giving. That's what they were characterized by, their sharing. Now notice in the book of Acts, everyone had their needs met, but the emphasis was not on the, wasn't on the taking, it was on the giving, on the sharing, the koinonia of the community, right? And so there's a disconnect between those two things. So a few things that are normal for us, like I said, I think that consumerism is something that's normal. I think that cynicism is normal. Here's the third thing. I think radical individualism is normal. It's, it's normal in our, in our communities that we have radical individualism. In the same way that our culture has sort of conditioned us to be consumers, we are also conditioned to be individuals. And so we are constantly told of our own uniqueness, of our own, we are special in our own right, and, and relativity is huge. So whatever's good for you is good for you. Whatever's good for me is good for me. Don't tell me what's good for me, and I won't tell you what's good for you. It's all about this, about being an individual and being unique in your own right, right? And so what happens is when that mentality integrates itself into spirituality, what it looks like a lot of times is it looks like a very strong focus on, on individual spirituality. And so there's a lot of conversations about my, my individual personal walk with God. We hear this a lot, right? You need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. The focus is all on that. And, and, and don't hear me wrong, the, the, the Bible is very clear that each one of us should have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. That's actually something the Bible wants for us. However, when you look at scripture, what you see is that these people didn't simply have an individual relationship with Jesus Christ, but they were dedicated, right? They were obstinately persistent and, and pursuing a relationship with each other. There's a corporate identity that they shared. And I feel like today, a lot of times what happens is individual, individualism causes us to push community to the side. And so the church is oftentimes left out. And we hear people say things like, uh, I don't need the church, man. I can just experience God on my own. I can go into the woods and I can be in nature and I can have a positive personal connection with God there. I can go to the library. I can read my Bible. I can get some other spiritual books and I can have a personal interaction with God that way. I can do yoga on my own and somehow connect with God that way. And there's this strong emphasis on personal spirituality. Yet what you see in the book of Acts is that when this group of people came to know Jesus and the Holy Spirit indwelt them, notice that the focus was not on the individual aspect. It was on the community aspect. These people shared in this way. 
Uh, Dennis McCallum, he's a, a pastor and an author. He was writing about this same thing in a book called Members of One Another. I thought what he said was so, so great. He's talking about Acts chapter 2. I just want to read this to you. This is what he said. He said, what are we saying for today? Certainly some of the features of this group, talking about Acts chapter 2, might be true of quality churches today. He says, but come on, man. People disowning their real estate, giving money to the church, people gathering virtually every day. He says, are you kidding? That would be completely insane. Modern people have lives to live. They have things to do. Any group like this that showed up today would be rejected as a cult. Pure fanaticism. This is downright weird. It's bizarre. That's what he says. But then watch this next part. I love this. He says, or is it? He says, maybe our lives are bizarre. It's kind of like our series. Maybe we're the ones that are far from normal. He goes on, he says, in Western cities, many people think it's normal to live in a state of postmodern alienation where people may spend whole series of days and nights without any meaningful human relating. Their conversations may never go beyond the superficial, rarely or never connecting on a personal level. Modern people see nothing strange about living in a sea of people that have no idea what's really going on in their lives and their closest relationship may be with their pet dog. To which I would say, ouch and true true we live in a radically individualistic society look you, you've you've heard me say this before if you've been around for a while i'll say it again there is no such thing as a lone ranger christian there is not and and if you if you're a person right now who's been who's been a follower of jesus for a while and you are not integrated into deep community the type that we see here that if you're not connected to a life group if you're the ninja right that slips in and slips out and no one knows you're here if that's you I'm just telling you, you are forfeiting one of the greatest graces that God has designed in your life to help you grow. It's something that God has provided for us in this. And radical individualism can keep us from um, this picture that we see. So um, what should be normal? There's a picture of it. What tends to be normal? Those are a few of my thoughts. There's probably a lot more to say about that. You might have some thoughts too. I'd love to hear them. You drop me an email or catch me in the cafe afterwards. But for time's sake, let's go to that third question. So why? Why is it like this? It, and, and I think it's pretty clear to see that the picture that the Bible gives us of community, what a Holy Spirit-empowered community should look like, and what you and I are probably experiencing in our own experiences, it seems like in our culture there is a disconnect between those two things. So the question is why? Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I know not everyone in this room is a follower of Jesus Christ, we have the Holy Spirit. So what's keeping us from experiencing this type of community? Well, I think that some of the things I already mentioned can help us kind of understand some of those answers. But let me just mention one thing that I haven't said that I believe is really sort of the crux of the issue. And I think we're going to find it right here in this passage. I just want you to take a look real quick with me at verse 40. We didn't look at this yet, but verse 40, I think verse 40 and 41 are so important to understanding verse 42 to 47 that it's, that it's integral to understanding the rest of the passage. So you guys might remember what happens is Peter preaches a sermon 3,000 people come to know Jesus. It's unbelievable. They, they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we're told this, with many other words, the Bible says about the Apostle Peter's teaching, it says with many other words, uh, Peter warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves, he said, from this corrupt generation, is what he said. And then it says, verse 41, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Now, I don't know if you caught what just happened there, but let me try to break it down. Peter looks at these people. He's just preached to them. 3,000 of them come to know Jesus. And then the Bible says he says to these people, you need to save yourselves from this corrupt generation. 
Now that, that term, corrupt generation, some of you have different translations, it might say crooked generation. I'll just tell you the word crooked is probably closer to the way that should be translated. The word that's used there, crooked, is the word scoliosis. It's where we get this idea of scoliosis. So if you guys think of scoliosis, you tend to think of someone whose back is very crooked, right? When we read crooked or corrupt, we tend to think evil. Like, save yourself from this evil generation. Stay away from the world. It's so evil. But that's not what Peter's saying, okay? What he means is this. Save yourself from this crooked, from this malaligned, from this broken generation. And this is all he means. What he means is there is a value system that this generation has of, of what success is, of what fulfillment is. That there's, there are pursuits that this world is chasing. And he says, Peter says, and it's corrupt. It's crooked. It's broken. It overpromises you. It tells you it's going to fulfill you. And it ends up leaving you hungry every single time. And so Peter looks at these guys and he says, you need to save yourself from this corrupt generation. And the Bible says that as a result of that teaching, what these people do is they get baptized, which by the way, is a simple way of identifying yourself with a new community. That's what baptism is. They identify themselves with a new community and they begin living out a radically different life. I want you to see what's happening here. All right. For these people, Christianity was not simply an addition to their lives. This was a pervasive overhaul for them of their values, of their fulfillments, of their desires, of, their, of the things they were pursuing and chasing in life. It was a complete radical transformation. It was a generation shift. It was literally, the Bible calls it, a citizenship. They switched citizenship from the kingdom of this world to the kingdom of heaven. Let me try to put it this way, all right? I, um, I am a, I'm kind of a hobby jumper. I don't know if any of you guys are this way. Any of you guys hobby jumpers? I'm a hobby jumper, which means that I, I, I'll get into a hobby and then I'll learn a bunch about it and then I'll quickly dismiss it and go to another hobby and learn a bunch about it and then I'll quickly dismiss it and go. And so because of that, I've, I've gotten into some pretty obscure hobbies. And, uh, and a couple of the hobbies I've gotten into that are sort of strange, uh, probably the two strangest ones. One is for a little while I got into whittling, like with wood, like whittling with, with wood like, like a 90-year-old man does. And I got into that until I cut my hand and I had to get like five stitches and I was done with whittling. Uh, but I was into it for a little while. And then the other one I got into, strangely as it sounds, I got into shaving, which I obviously don't do now, but... Um, like it was like shaving like your grandpa used to shave, you know, with like the safety razor and the scuttle and the brush and the thing. And I just thought it was cool. So I kind of got into it and I would watch YouTube videos about it and all that kind of stuff. And I, I know I'm like prematurely 90 years old. But um, as I got into those hobbies, one of the things that I came to find was that there is a whole subculture that was underneath both of those hobbies. And so as it related to shaving, there was like, there was conventions you could go to, shaving conventions. There were newsletters and like Facebook groups, and you could like really get into shaving. It's as weird as it sounds. The same thing when I got into to whittling. There was like, there was like a convention you could go to. There was training class. There was support groups, which I'm like, what are you supporting? It's whittling. I don't know. You just cut the wood, you know. And but there's there's all of these these interesting things. Now here, here's why I tell you that. When I got into those two hobbies, I can just tell you that it it, it was it was an addition to my life. And I was into whittling, and I would do whittling, and I was into shaving, and I would shave back then when I when I would shave. But I just tell you, it had nothing to do with the rest of my life. It did not change the way that I viewed my marriage. It did not view the way I looked at my work. It did not view the way that I dealt with suffering. It did not change any of those things. 
right? It was just an addition to my life. Now, here's my fear. My fear is that for many of us, Christianity, for those of us who follow Jesus, Christianity, we view it just like a hobby. It's an addition to our, our pursuits that we're already following and chasing in this life. It's just something that we're adding to it, right? And, and, and for many of us, my fear is there's newsletters, just like any hobby, some people are more into it than other people are. But my fear is that it has nothing to do with the rest of your life, that it's not pervasive, that it doesn't change the way you view your marriage, that it doesn't change your value system, that it doesn't reprioritize your pursuits in life. You see, for these people, the Bible tells us they'd looked at their generation, they looked at the values of their generation, and Peter said, listen, the salvation that Jesus has to offer is far more comprehensive than you can even imagine. It's not simply that Jesus saved you from eternal damnation. Jesus has also saved you from useless living, from investing yourselves in things that are not going to give you the fulfillment that God truly desires for you. And you guys, I think it's the same situation for you and I. In our culture, our culture tells us, and, 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 it, and it gives us a whole virtue system, a whole value system that tells us to pursue. So, so our culture tells us that one of the highest things you can do is, is give your children safety. And so we chase after safety. We get the van with all the million airbags in it and all the crazy stuff. We give our kids only the right food. It's got to be organic, right? And it's got to be a million dollars for a bowl of oatmeal, right? We've got to give them the, the safe. We have to make sure they wear their helmet when they ride their bike and they wear a harness when we walk them in the neighborhood, you know? I don't know. And, 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 and our culture sells us this idea of security. We need to secure for our children a safe future. So we have to give them a diversity of experiences. And so our kids are involved in ballet and dance and football and basketball and postmodern clog dancing and whatever other strange thing <laughs> your kid is connected in. And we do it because our culture tells us that if we do those things, that will give us security, right? Our culture tells us that we can find, we can find our value in what we own. We can find our value in our accumulation of things and how much you make a year and what kind of car you drive and what kind of zip codes you live in. And many of us pursue those things as the pursuits of our heart. Our culture tells us that our value is found in the way we look. So many of us, man, we are, we are incessantly going to the gym. We, we labor over our diet so that we can look a certain way. We are fearful of getting older, constantly trying to reverse that process because our culture has trained us that this is the value system that will lead to fulfillment. For many of us, we're taught that in work, that my value is found in how well I'm doing and my performance and, and, and how I measure up to other people, right? And, and listen, I think Peter would look at us and he would say, man, it's crooked. It's, it's warped. It's messed up. It's broken. Because if you chase those things, if, that is the, if that's the pursuit of your life, if that's what you're pursuing, I think he would say, look, you're going to end up getting sorely, sorely, sorely um, upset. And you're going to realize that, that it's going to leave you hungry every time because those things in the end don't satisfy. And so Peter says... Being a Christian, it offers a more comprehensive salvation. It doesn't simply save you from eternal damnation. It saves you from worthless living. And so he says, therefore, reject the values of this culture and come into a new community, a new perspective, a new worldview in which you view things. One that's not marked by hoarding, but is marked by generosity. One that's not marked by individuality and competitiveness, but on sharing and on corporateness. And this is a radical transition. You guys, I, I wonder for us, maybe the reason that we're not experiencing the type of community that the Holy Spirit desires for us to communicate, to, 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 to experience together is because 
maybe we're pursuing things of a wrong generation. And when there needs to be an identity change that we see that happens here. What should be normal, we have it here. What tends to be normal, we mentioned a few things. Why? I think that one of the big reasons is because for many of us, maybe if we're honest, we view Christianity, for those of us who follow Christ, as an add-on to our lives, not a pervading thing that affects it all. And I think that we're called into something where there's a transformation altogether. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and as they do, I just want to close with a couple thoughts, and then we'll pray and be finished, and uh, we'll sing and worship together. But uh, let me just talk first off to those who follow Jesus. Okay? For those of us who are Christians, who, who would say that we follow Christ, I think we have to ask ourselves a couple really important questions. Here's one. Okay, one question is, for you, is, is your relationship with Jesus Christ, is it something that is permeating every aspect of your life? Is it redefining for you every pursuit that you're chasing after? Or is it simply for you an addition to your life? Is it that you're asking, is it simply that you're asking God to give you the things that, you, that our culture values? Or is it that you've switched value systems altogether? And I believe that what the Holy Spirit has called us into is a radical transformation and a new community with a different set of values and a different focus altogether. And that's what we see in the book of Acts. Are you dedicated to the things and devoted to the things that we see in the book of Acts? Search your heart and ask those questions. I think another question I would ask you if you're a believer in Jesus is, have you been baptized? I mean, it's pretty simple. We see it here in this passage. The Bible tells us that when you come to know Christ, that the next step is you should be baptized as a way of identifying yourself in this new community. And I just tell you, if you've never done that as a believer in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you, talk to your life group leader. Most of our baptisms happen in life groups. Um, if, you have, if you have no life group, uh, on those connection cards under my spiritual journey, uh, we are going to have a baptism service here for those who are not connected to life groups. Check that box. We'd love to get you connected and get you baptized. Right. The second group I just want to talk to you real quick is those who are not Christians. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you're just investigating Jesus, let me just say this. We say it every week. It is a privilege and an honor. We count it a privilege and honor that you would allow us to be part of your investigation. But I would just tell you, as we look at this passage, my guess is there's probably something inside of you that even though it seems weird and even though it seems idealistic and even though it seems so far from normal, there's probably something inside of you that says, man, secretly, I really want to be part of something like that. And I think the reason that that's in your heart, it's in my heart, is because that's what God has designed us for. God wants that for us, and it's available to us only when we follow Christ. So I would encourage you, if you're investigating Jesus, here's my encouragement to you. I would just encourage you, when you investigate, don't investigate alone, all right? Maybe jump in a life group. You're like, but I'm not a Christian. Can I go to a life group? Absolutely, absolutely. Because in Acts chapter 2, they lived out everything in light of everybody. And so we would do the same. And we'd encourage you to come and investigate together. It's a new community. The Holy Spirit makes extraordinary ordinary. And this is what is normal according to what Scripture teaches. Let's pray together. Father, I want to say thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for this incredible, radical, strange, foreign picture that you've given us of what it looks like to be in a community that is empowered by you. And I pray, God, that you would help us to see that community here. Oh, God, we want to see it. I pray that your Holy Spirit would empower us towards that end. Father, thanks for each person that's here this morning. And uh, I just want to ask you, God, that you would help us, help us to process through, Father, what our own priorities are in our own lives, that we'd follow you. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.